Hello and welcome to Oh God What Now, the podcast administered in weekly doses to build up 91% immunity against the news. I'm Dorian Linsky. With me today, Minnie Rahman is Public Affairs and Campaigns Manager at the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. Hi, Minnie. Hi, Dorian. So Napier Barracks in Kent, which is used to house asylum seekers, burst into flames last Friday, which suggests it's uh, it's suboptimal accommodation. Then it emerged that the Home Office had justified using MOD properties because better accommodation would, quote, undermine public confidence in the asylum system. Is there a problem with using all MOD barracks or is it is it this one in particular? Yeah, I would say it's all MOD barracks. So I think to understand this, you have to understand what provisions were previously in place. Before the use of these barracks, we had two systems. You had asylum accommodation, which is things like hostels, hotels, the more traditional style of housing in the community for people going through the system. And then you have detention centres where people who have failed to get status are housed indefinitely in prison-like conditions, supposedly until they can be deported. But in practice, that doesn't happen and people just live there for months on end. The barracks are essentially a combination of the two. They are people who are asylum seekers who have active claims. They're not being deported, but they are being essentially housed in prison-like conditions on sites which conflate the military and immigration, which I think is a huge problem. Many of them will have experienced state or military violence, so that's very traumatic for the people being housed there. The barracks themselves are inhospitable. They're overcrowded. There's been several COVID outbreaks and, and obviously, you know, a fire. So on top of that, the government has asked everyone entering these sites to sign non-disclosure forms and you have journalists being arrested for reporting there. So there's a complete and utter lack of of transparency. And to be quite honest, I think it's very close to the line on what the US introduced during the Trump regime. Alex Andreu recently celebrated a a big birthday and he's ageing like a fine wine. Hello, Alex. (laughs) Hello. I think I'm corked. <laughs> could, could we have another, Alex, please? <laughs> You've been following the numerous ways in which Brexit's causing small businesses headaches at the border. Um, what is the most eye-catching one this week? Well, a beekeeper is trying to import uh, 15 million baby bees and has been told they might be seized and destroyed. The UK basically needs to replenish its stocks every year. You know, foreign bees coming over here, doing the pollinating, while British bees sit at home collecting benefits. No, it's just not warm enough to breed them here. So, But bee imports are banned post-Brexit directly, but it looked like they were allowed via Northern Ireland. However, bee health, and I'm quoting from DEFRA's response here, bee health is a devolved matter. So now they're stuck in no bee land. So could they should should uh, should the government in negotiations have taken some of that fish time, those countless <laughs> hours of fish time, and set aside a little bit for bee time for so many other things? I can't. I mean, I it would take the entire podcast to give you a full list of what's going on. The fashion industry has written a letter saying it's being strangled. Textiles are facing huge issues because, you know, raw material, then the fabric, then the government garment tend to travel across borders. Um, fashion models and their agencies are dead in the water because of the same issues that have plagued musicians. Issues for seafood explorers seem to be, seem to be getting worse. Uh, they're spreading to meat, which is facing delays and lack of clarity. Everything from bees to cheese truckles, from hedge fund products to bulls for breeding and horses for racing, is experiencing a sort of death by a thousand 
paper cuts. And these are not bumps. They're not teething problems. These are oversights, okay? They require fixing. So, you know, mollusks face an outright ban for export, mussels, oysters, things like that, because they have to travel in water, same as plant nursery exports are banned because they have to travel with soil. And our munificent government negotiated a a deal for the thing, but not the medium the thing travels in. And, you know, Unless these things are sorted, they're not going to magically go away. They require a negotiated solution, in some cases, the passage of legislation. Unless these things are sorted immediately, a thousand niche industries that came into being over four decades to take advantage of the ease of trade across the block will die overnight. And this is a multiplying effect. You can dismiss each one of them as a very small industry. But when you look across the hundreds of those uh, sectors which are suffering right now, it adds up to a big fucking problem. Well, if only the party of small business had had uh, a little time to consult small businesses beforehand. <laughs> but, but obviously Fuck it, business. it all happened, had to happen very, very quickly. Um, our guest this week is Matt Tancona, former deputy editor of the Sunday Telegraph and editor of Spectator, currently editor and partner at Tortoise, the slow media company. His book, Identity, Ignorance, Innovation, Why the Old Politics is Useless and What to Do About It, is out on the 18th of March. Hi, Matt. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks very much for having me. Charles Moore ruled himself out of the BBC chairman job, uh, but it looks like former Daily Mail editor Paul Dacre, uh, as, as um, hinted months ago, will indeed be taking over Ofcom. Is he a good choice or just a political choice? Uh, he's a terrible choice, but he's a political choice. Um, I mean, he's a terrible choice for all sorts of reasons. Uh, head of a regulator as powerful as Ofcom really shouldn't have so many axes to grind. I mean, he, he doesn't have one axe. He has a, <laughs> a whole a cupboard full of axes to grind. And, you know, he ran the Daily Mail as a, as a, as a, as a fiefdom for many years. It was a commercial success, but it, you know, it was it was it was responsible for a very distinctive, um, to my mind, very unattractive worldview. But but you know, the the regulator the regulator that that, that runs the broadcasting in, in industry has has to be you know impartial, visibly impartial, trusted, and so on. Dacre is you know wildly irascible, um, fantastically autocratic, and almost genetically ill-suited to running an organisation like Ofcom. I mean, I cannot. It's almost as if there'd been a kind of party game in number 10. Yeah, who would be the worst person to run off? And they came up with the, the correct, they definitely came up with the correct answer. I'll give them that. Um, the pandemic has slightly taken the heat out of um, or, 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 or distracted us from the fact that this is a very, very populist government. It's about slogans and campaigning and winning things like referendums and elections rather than doing things. And it has some quite dubious um, objectives in the field of media, a real beef against the BBC, which was which was uh, particularly strong when Dominic Cummings was still in number 10. But it's a mistake to think that it's it's no longer there now that Cummings has gone. And I think that the, 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 the sort of two-prong attack of getting Dacre in at Ofcom Charles Moore in at uh, the BBC was was very much part of, you know, this this whole let's tame the BBC, let's tame the media. There was a kind of a sort of genteel version of of the Trump approach to the media and the, the whole kind of 
fake news charge. And I, I personally think that it's, it's important to label this as unambiguously sinister. You know, regulators should be boring, efficient, hardworking, assiduous. And in fact, one of the reasons I think Dacre might spontaneously combust if he does become the head of Ofcom is that so much of Ofcom's work is really, really dull. You know, it's about making dull, process-driven decisions about content, what to do, policy and all that sort of thing. I mean, he, he doesn't, you know, this is a man who wants to invade countries. He doesn't want to, you know, improve the quality of the media. Um, so I suspect that it, it will not be a happy uh, 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 c- kind of marriage, him and him and Ofcom. Well, we'll be talking about uh, some of these issues uh, more later. First, we'll be talking about European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen in the spotlight as seldom before. Who is she and what makes her tick? Then, with the Republican Party radicalised by Trump and hard-right Tory backbenchers holding Johnson's feet to the fire, is there a sane conservatism somewhere in our future on either side of the Atlantic? And as British people's attitudes to immigration soften, the government's harden. Why are we paying EU citizens to leave the UK and detaining other EU citizens in cruel conditions on technicalities? Before we start, a bit of news. Our next live Zoom will be on Thursday, the 25th of February at 8pm, and it's free to Patreon backers. Search Patreon Oh God What Now podcast, sign up to support us, and you can register for an hour of Oh God What Now with me, Alex, Naomi, Roz, and Ian. Patreon backers should have their invitations already. If not, check your Patreon page. And if you want to help out a bit more, and we, we don't normally ask this, why not give us a positive review and star rating on Apple Podcasts? Uh, the stars should be all the stars. Remember to fill in all of the stars. It all helps to get the podcast noticed. So it's been a rough week for Ursula von der Leyen. Her reputation for competence took a hit when the EU and UK clashed over supplies of the AstraZeneca vaccine. The EU's vaccine rollout has been accused of being too slow and too cautious. But who is the first woman to be elected president of the European Commission and how can she weather this storm? Alex, before she took the EU job, von der Leyen spent about 15 years as a loyal member of Angela Merkel's cabinet, and she was tipped to become either the next German Chancellor or the next Secretary General of NATO um, before taking the EU job. Can you sort of run us through her career, or I suppose what, what's, what leaps out to you in her past that you think is, um, is relevant to what she's doing now? So, uh, Roschen, little Rose, as she's known to her family and friends, uh, was actually born in Brussels. That's the first thing that jumps out at me. So her father was one of the very first European civil servants, working various positions and rising to competition director general. Um, she studied economics at the LSC, then medicine at uh, Hanover Medical School, while also her political career was going. Um, she occupied various positions in Angela Merkel's uh, cabinet, notably labor and social affairs for four years, then defense for six years. And she was also deputy leader of the CDU for most of that time. Uh, she's married to a doctor from a, from a pretty aristocratic family and has, wait for it, seven kids. I know. Blimey. At least she's not homeschooling them all. That's quite a brood, right? <laughs> That's quite a brood. Um, so, you know, she's quite, quite a remarkable woman in, in, in all sorts of ways. And, I mean, she, she wasn't um, the first choice uh, for this job. What changes did she promise when she took office? What what priorities did she lay out? I think because of her previous brief in defence, she was seen as, as someone who is 
going to be good at advancing the EU's geopolitical agenda, um, which is really at the forefront of what the EU wants to do now. So there is a real drive for the EU to have a unified foreign policy, to drive towards a sort of unified defence policy. And I think she was seen as someone who could do that. On climate change, the information is a little bit more conflicting. So she's a massive advocate of the EU-Mercosur agreement that would create the the world's largest free trading zone. But it is seen by many as something that will accelerate deforestation. Um, On the flip side, uh, the recent coronavirus economic recovery package was by common admission, remarkably green. So, uh, you know, it, it, the the funds were linked to a green recovery co- really quite explicitly. She's socially liberal, um, you know, voted against the party on same-sex rights several times, but there's a shadow of a teeny bit of nativism there she changed the titles of various directorates and the directorate in charge of migration she proposed be named the department for protecting the european way of life which made quite a lot of people uh, very uncomfortable and for very good reason Millie, Alex alluded there to the recovery fund. And so at an earlier point in the pandemic, she seemed to be um, doing fairly well. Um, then, of course, this this sort of disastrous week. But she quickly U-turned on the invocation of Article 16. How do you rate her damage limitation? You know, I think we've, we've talked before on this podcast about how U-turns can be a really good thing in politics because politicians should absolutely be held accountable to what the public want or the public mood, or, or in this case, other governments and and decision makers. And it's obviously good that she made a very swift U-turn once it was apparent um, that there was a mistake. It shows that she's capable of of decisive decision making. You know, compare that with, for example, Boris Johnson and his never-ending bumbling around important decisions. (laughs) Um, But I think she has done a huge amount of, of reputational damage and some damage to confidence in her leadership and particularly in her ability to manage the, the complexities of the pandemic. Um, you know, it's really bad that, that other senior leadership and member states have said that they were blindsided by the decision and, and weren't approached for consultation. You know, you can't work in the commission without consulting relevant decision makers. You know, that's the very heart and ethos of the, of the commission. So I think that there will be some long lasting effects that she potentially can't control that she's now now that she's made a mistake. And even her predecessor, Jean-Claude Juncker, says the EU's vaccine programme is too slow. Von der Leyen defended it by suggesting that the UK wasn't cautious enough. Um, and she didn't exactly apologise for the Article 16 move. She just kind of, you know, backed down on it. Would she be wiser to admit mistakes and pledge to do better? Or is she, and maybe anybody in that role, sort of forced to play defence that you just can't say, oh yeah, sorry guys, I should probably have uh, have ordered more vaccines sooner. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very it's a very different political context, considering that you know it's it's the Commission. Uh, first of all, I don't think that people in the EU necessarily want to hear that the UK has done a good job. So I'm not surprised that she hasn't had anything nice to say about the UK. 
given that she will have questions about her leadership, she is probably right to play a defensive tactic. And I think that is what she's done by saying that she she takes full responsibility, but without delving much deeper into how things could have been done differently or how she will improve the vaccine situation in the EU. I also think that she does have to take a bit of a defensive stance because the the public procurement process was supported by all member states for for a number of reasons, and one of which was to protect smaller member states and ensure that they could um, have a negotiating platform with Big Pharma. So she can't really go out there and, and trash the whole thing. Diplomacy has to be her priority, even if diplomacy is kind of what she failed to do this week. And when the UK was in the EU, happy days, um, the British press loved a European commissioner to kick around. Uh, you know, the first one I remember was Jacques Upyours Delors uh, in the early 90s. Do you think, um, even though we're not part of the EU anymore, that von der Leyen is going to be a sort of an easy target from, from now on, that this, this incident has made her sort of um, well-known for, for all the wrong reasons? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think... First of all, the the government was probably surprised to be on the right side of an argument with the EU. So I think the, the <laughs> government will probably bring that out at every available opportunity to reinforce why it was such a great idea that we left the EU and, and to undermine any further discussions while she's in post. And I think that that is also something that, that tabloids and, and media will will pick up on and, and do as, as often as they can to kind of validate the position that we're currently in. The best repost I read was that at least she changed her mind in the space of two hours without a footballer having to tell her. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, Matt, there was a wonderful uh, story in The Guardian about um, Matt Hancock's uh, affection for the film Contagion. And a government spokesman had to say the UK vaccine effort was in no way built on the epidemiological model of watching a film, but it was an illustrative example. He would say, we've all seen Contagion, right? It was helpful. Um, and that, that apparently is what sort of kept convincing him that, you know, you just you had to order as many vaccines as possible. So you don't have to have a kind of lottery system like in the movie. And it sort of worked. And it's been a very difficult, it's a very confusing uh, couple of weeks for Remainers and people who don't like this government, because it seems like um, it seems like a great success compared to the EU so far. It's the you wrote a piece for Tortoise about this. Is the government um, as surprised as anyone to be on the on the right side of this? Well, first of all, I'm glad it was Contagion and not World War Z or The Walking Dead. <laughs> <laughs> things could have gone really haywire. Uh, you know, that was a that was a, a lucky break. Um, I think this operates on a number of levels. Um, I mean, we all know that that huge slices of the government's pandemic strategy have gone wrong. Um, conspicuously so in the case of test and trace and isolate. However, on, on, on the vaccine, they did make a one particular very deft decision, which was when the Oxford vaccine looked like it was um, going to work and, and, and so on, and the government was involved in, in brokering and helping to uh, get the Oxford researchers to the altar with a big corporation, uh, the General Institute and everyone else in, in, in Oxford involved in, in the vaccine normally went with Merck and Co., the, 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 the US pharma giant. But Merck would not commit in, in legally binding language to the 100 million doses up front as a priority that Hancock wanted. And sort of out of the blue, AstraZeneca said, no, we'll do it which was a surprise because actually AstraZeneca had not been sort of high on the list, but, but they, you know, Pascal Sorio, who's the head of AstraZeneca, spotted the opportunity. 
And, and thus a deal was done, which meant that compared to just about everywhere else, actually, uh, we were in a very, very strong position once the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine was approved by the regulator. And, you know, the EU was just, was just behind in that, on, on that specific front. So you had this very odd situation where the EU was saying, hang on a minute, where's that, where are our AstraZeneca doses? Uh, and the UK was saying, we've got them. And, um, and the EU was saying, this isn't the normal script. What's going on? On one level, the Tory party was thrilled because here was this notional demonstration that Brexit works and the EU is rubbish and all that sort of thing. Uh, and that, and that sort of, that played for a few days. I think though that at a deeper level, it was quite traumatic for the government in this sense that it was, it was an absolutely crystal clear demonstration of the fact that we are now a foreign country as far as the EU mm. is concerned. You know, the Vera von Leyen had, had been, had proved herself in the wrong. She'd also acted as, you know, a foreign power does when it's crossed with an, a, a, you know, a third party nation. And that, I think, unsettled the government in private because it suddenly dawned on them that this is only the first of many such confrontations that lie down the, the, the road. Because in a sense, We've grown used to Brexit being a process, a mood, an internal argument, Remainer versus Leave and so on. But actually, it's now become a supranational geopolitical reality. And, you know, Brexit starts now. And one of the things that this government and future governments are going to have to deal with is stuff like this. And some of it will be collaboration, but plenty of it will be attritional. There will be, you know, this is not the last time we're, we're going to be having discussions like this. And mm. so I think it, it was it was that moment where something which you've known rationally was the case, we're leaving the EU, and we really are le- leaving the EU with a trade deal, suddenly became emotionally real as well. So tactically, they couldn't have been more happy. But strategically, I think it's it, it gave them pause for thought in the government, because it was, wow, you know, we really are on our own now. And a phrase that's been uh, kicked around a, a lot recently is vaccine nationalism, but I've seen it interpreted in a in a few different ways. How do you define it, and and who's guilty of it? Well, I think that most countries are guilty of it to a certain extent, which is that if a country uh, is doing well in in vaccinating its population, it it makes a big noise about it. If it has been responsible for the development of a vaccine, it makes a big noise about it. If it has managed to achieve swift regulation, most controversially, uh, as we did with Pfizer, uh, it makes a big noise about it. And this can sometimes degenerate into slightly toe-curling, flag-waving social media assets with, you know, a picture of the Union Jack in front of an arbitrary statistic saying we're better than everyone everywhere. And, you know, the idea that we're sort of, we just won the semi-final in the World Vaccine Cup, you know, again, the EU and on penalties and we're up against Israel in the final. Uh, and this is not a very grown-up way of looking at, at it. I, I mean, where I think it is inevitable is that most nations that are, that, that are in a good place with vaccines are going to uh, inevitably prioritise their own populations. And it's idle to, to expect anything else to happen. The interesting point will come, and it'll come very soon, is when the most vulnerable have been vaccinated, 
what do you then do about starting to get into the real question, which is that in epidemiological reality, until everyone is vaccinated, no one is vaccinated. I mean, especially with variants. Um, it's not just an ethical question how we get vaccines out to the uh, developing nations and those that are struggling with vaccine development. It, it, it's, 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 it's enlightened self-interest. We need everyone on the planet to be uh, vaccinated against, against COVID-19 for all sorts of reasons, ethical and self-interested. And I think that one of the big stories that you'll see in the next uh, two or three months is who does most, whether COVAX, this initiative to get vaccines into into uh, more deprived nations, um, whether that really is given much heft by the wealthier nations, as it certainly should be. Vaccine nationalism is fine, I guess, when it's just for domestic consumption. But actually, if you want to knock this pandemic on the head, it's 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 a loser strategy. You know, we need, we need everyone on, on the planet uh, to, to be vaccinated and, and right quickly. Alex, we've now ordered apparently over 400 million doses of various vaccines, enough to jab everyone nearly six times each. Uh, presumably they're not going to do that. Um, do you think the government is going to sort of take the the PR opportunity, the soft power opportunity, as obviously China very- is doing, to sort of play Milky Bar Kid and uh, and you know offer vaccines to various countries uh, that you want to impress? Absolutely, I I don't think they will be offering them to the EU, and I don't think the EU would accept them, to be honest, because they won't want to be seen uh, to be in, a, in the um, position of supplicant when it comes to vaccines with the UK. And also, you know, Europe is a rich continent. They will throw enough money at the issue and the EU within two months will have caught up on the vaccination front. So, you know, in relations are sour at the moment, I don't think. But perhaps uh, they could offer them to less developed nations. You know, we're hoping to exploit <laughs> uh, as part of global Britain. Woohoo. You know, there's a, there's a bit of me that's proud that this series of bets, because there were a series of bets, mm. worked out. Yeah. You know, there, were, there was a lovely piece by um, uh, Daniel Finkelstein this week in The Times that says, you know, the, the same series of risks could have not worked out. You know, it could have been the, the vaccine that France supported heavily that worked out and the Oxford one that didn't and would be in a very different situation. So, you know, there's a, there's a part of me that's gratified that, that there's an abundance of vaccines in this country. There's a part of me also that's a little bit ashamed that we're that guy in the zombie apocalypse that holds all the medicine. I don't think that guy is a good guy to be. <laughs> now, pragmatic small C conservatism was smothered at the last UK election, is practically dead in the US, but can we have a healthy political system without it? Will it stage a comeback or is nationalism the future of conservatism? Matt, let's start at home I'm, I'm, and start with you uh, personally. Have, have you had to sort of rethink where you belong on the political spectrum um, over the last five years because of all these sorts of changes? L- longer, I think, in the sense that I was, as a columnist, um, 
particularly, uh, and in some think tank activity, you know, involved from quite an early stage in trying in the project to try and modernize the Conservative Party, because it seemed to me that it was it was it was essential that it, it at least come to terms with the 1960s, if if <laughs> if no more. And there was a bit of this in uh, early William Hague and then quite a bit of it under David Cameron. But it was quickly overtaken by the huge political ramifications of the financial crash and also the rise of UKIP, the rise of post-Lisbon Treaty, a a demand in the UK for a referendum to which Cameron uh, submitted. And out of that, and with the rise of social media, emerged a, a very different kind of conservatism, which obviously had its analogue on the other side of the Atlantic, which was populist and, to my eyes, just disgustingly obsessed with the question of immigration, uh, flirting with really unpleasant um, memes and ideas about nativism, race, and so on. To be honest, a, a completely different approach to what it was to be a conservatism. I mean, conservatism historically has been a very practical creed. It's had it's had um, periods of, of of revolutionary ideology, as in Thatcherism. But even Thatcherism was about practice and 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 what you you know what you did with the state, how you configured the modern state and its relationship with labor you know the the the, the curtailing of inflation the relationship with the soviet bloc and so on and so on but it was a fairly clear governing creed i think modern populist conservatism has very little contact with the business of government it's about slogans it's about winning it, it, you know it's no accident that, that, that what boris johnson did when he became prime minister was essentially graft the old vote leave team from the 2016 <laughs> referendum campaign on to number 10 and that was both extremely effective in terms of winning the 2019 election and to, to, to my mind anyway very very bad news for the country because you have a, a cabinet that is based entirely uh, upon loyalty rather than credentials. Uh, you have, you know, a foreign secretary like Dominic Raab. Let's just think about that for a minute. Pause. Um, <laughs> and then an even longer pause when we think that, you know, Priti Patel is home secretary. Um, you know, these are great offices of state. You know, really impressive people have held these jobs. And they're now in the hands of, you know, C-list uh, populists. This is this is not good for a, one of the most powerful countries on earth. Uh, well, this like is, the prospects of the Conservative Party. Well, this is what I wonder because because this this sort of nationalist version of conservatism was was Johnson's key to winning the, the Brexit election. But but I've, I've been looking for a while for its sort of intellectual engine room, and like you say, Thatcherism. And I remember being aware of this even at the time. You know that that, that Thatcher had a an idea, and she had people that she looked to. People I did even when I didn't even I, I had no idea who, who Hayek was, but I knew that you know there was some something a real underpinning to her project, and that you know that enabled it to sort of keep going for for quite a while and kind of and reshape the country uh, for good or ill. But um. This lot, I don't know where to look. I don't know where they're, where they're in, in the Parliamentary Conservative Party or in the commentariat or among sort of intellectuals and, and academics. Who do you see in conservatism that is, that is really thinking about the big challenges? And, and without them, will it inevitably just sort of, you know, run out of road? Well, it's funny because I was talking to one of the people that ran against 
uh, Boris Johnson for the leadership the other day, who said there is no conservative thinking group now, really. I mean, it doesn't, you know, there are, there are, a group, there are very good think tanks like uh, Bright Blue, which I used to be involved with, which puts out fantastic content. But the government is, does not have a hinterland of brilliant thinkers it, I mean, it's, it's whole, it's, it's governing principle. It doesn't have a hinterland of even average thinkers. <laughs> yeah, it, it does, exactly. I mean, does it have a hinterland of thinkers full stop, you know, discuss? Because it doesn't see thinking as the essence of, of what it's there to do. Indeed, its whole approach is based on a sort of irritation with people who try and make things complicated. I mean, Boris Johnson's whole idea uh, which he, he does have in common with Trump, is a populism that's based on the idea that there are simple answers to complex problems and that everything can be contained in a slogan. And that has been effective sometimes, like take back control in the referendum campaign and stay at home in the first phase of the, the first lockdown and so on. But you cannot build... I mean, the, the British state is a huge unwieldy beast you can't operate it that's not a that's not a sufficient software the the sinister side of it i think is that again in common with trump it it looks for enemies it's food the way it, it it's nutrition it's to attribute blame whether it's to immigrants asylum seekers judges on the supreme court the media they operate by by attributing blame this is a very common technique of the populist right around the world and it worked very well in the 2019 election because Johnson was able to present Labour not only as ultra left wing, but also as in some way obstructing Brexit, standing against the implementation of the democratic will, being unpatriotic and so on and so on. Um, but what he didn't offer was a, was a programme of change. And I think that's because a lot of people have asked me, because I've sort of known him in through journalism and then his political career, you know, at what point did he become a right winger? It's the wrong question. It's not that Boris Johnson, when he was London mayor, was the authentic, cuddly liberal, and now he's become a sort of, you know, neo far right prime minister. It's that he will grab at any kind of uh, matrix of of methods and ideas that are to hand that will get him where he wants to be. And that is a profoundly unconservative way of going about things. So I, I find it very hard to look at this government and see that it stands in, in the tradition, you know, of, least of all of one nation conservatism that goes back to Disraeli, but even frankly, to the, the kind of neoliberal free market ideals of, of, of Thatcherism, because I think it's it's it has a very loose approach, for example, to fiscal policy. So I, I don't think I don't I just don't think there's a stable body of ideas that there's no there there is my point. Um, Millie, when Labour is out of power, it's consumed by agonies about what it should be and who it should speak to. Uh, and at the moment, you know that the, the word flag has been spoken, and there's huge agonies in the party again. Do you think it will take? Similarly, a defeat for the Tories to, to have any reason to have a long, hard think about where they're going. So as, as long as they're in power, there's just sort of no reason to fix it. Look, I mean, I, I just don't think that the Tories will ever go about soul searching in the way that, that Labour or the left do. And by that, I mean, very publicly and very angrily. You know, the party cultures are completely different. The Tories don't like to 
to air their um, dirty laundry. I think in many ways, a defeat is much less um, important for the Tories because it's not outside the realms of normal political cycles. You know, it's not as existential because they will have been in power for a very long time by the time of a defeat. So it might not feel Mm. much of a reason to kind of dig deep and think about failure. I also think that that kind of conversation is to some extent dictated by who the leader is and the and the current political context. And if by the next election the, the leader isn't Boris Johnson, it might be someone who is able to address some of the splits in the party more effectively or or some of the problems that the, that the party has faced. I mean, I, I don't know who that could be, but I think it is to some extent dictated by what the leadership is doing at that current time. And I, I think we're a bit of a way away from that. And we can blame sort of the banished small C conservatives like Philip Hammond, George Osborne, etc., for austerity and, and all kinds of, you know, sort of terrible policies that we disagree with. But just as, as, as you know, sort of Trumpism um, made people feel rather warmly towards Mitt Romney, uh, unlike in 2012 when he was actually running for president, did Brexit make you feel, and, and the kind of rise of populism, make you feel more kindly towards them and think, Oh, you know that something is lost if they're not in the party. Mm. I mean, I I like to live by the motto that good people can do bad things and bad people can do good things. And I will let you guys work out where I place Philip Hammond and George Osborne. <laughs> um, so you know, fine, maybe they weren't awful on Brexit, and I'm I'm glad about that. And but it hasn't really made me feel kind of more sympathetic towards them. I still think that they should be held accountable for those horrendous policies that ruined ruined people's lives. And I think you can do that at the same time. Um, so I think, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, I wouldn't be sitting in the pub with them, but I would have definitely preferred them to, to Johnson's cohort. Oh, that's, that's why we have because you on. Bad, bad people can also do bad things. Exactly. <laughs> Alex, much that we love to tell him, Johnson isn't Victor Orban, and as Matt sort of suggested, it's because he doesn't uh, believe in a great deal of things. Do you think his libertarian instincts and his please like me instincts, the instincts that, of course, have served him very badly during the pandemic, sort of saving us from some of the more authoritarian tendencies in the party? That is, is there a more is there a more sort of Orbanist instinct on the backbenches? You see, that's that's quite a superficial definition of being a libertarian. I mean, he's a libertarian in the sense that he doesn't mind his of, you know, he doesn't mind gay people or, you know, but but a libertarian also wants to fetter the power the state has over people's lives. And in this sense, he's not a libertarian. I don't think he's a Democrat, actually, and that bothers me. In terms of accountability and democratic scrutiny, every instinct he has displayed so far as to shut it down, to stifle judicial review, to reduce the time for legislation to be debated, to give his government wide-ranging powers, you know, to give jobs and contracts to his mates, to to issue, we consider the matter, closed statements every time his allies are criticized. That That, to me, isn't a libertarian. Um, Matt, turning to the US, the Republican Party surrendered itself to Trump, sort of debased itself before him, um, obviously won one election, then ended up losing the White House and both houses of Congress, as well as being complicit in an attempt to overturn the election. Oops. Um, 
Do you see any signs that they might turn away from Trump's base? And I suppose what we call the, the, the Lincoln Project seems to have had it with the party completely. But, but those kind of people, people like Mitt Romney, could have more sway or do events since the storming of the Capitol suggest that actually they're just still going to go all in with the base? I kind of feel it's a bit late. <laughs> I mean, it's not as if Trump's behavior before the uh, invasion of the Capitol was, uh, came as a huge surprise. What's this? You know, now he's advocating violence. This is, that's odd. I see Mitch McConnell now saying, you know, the, I hate all these conspiracy theorists and, you know, I, I'll have nothing to do with them. And Mitt Romney saying this is terrible. But, you know, I also remember Mitt Romney being photographed having a very, very oily dinner with Trump when he was looking to get a job in the administration. And, and I remember Mitch McConnell being very, very helpful to, uh, Trump on one of the many occasions he's been impeached. So I kind of feel a sort of spectacular lack of sympathy for any of them. The Republican Party, for all its flaws, has, you know, again, it, 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 it has, it, it is the GOP. It has, it has a, a long tradition and, and different wings and different elements. And it's a coalition, of course. But it allowed Trump, who's essentially an entertainment industry figure, and Steve Bannon, who is a economic nationalist and a uh, populist nationalist, to take it over and to sort of jump on it like a, a face hugger from Alien and, and infest it. And this was an act of, of sort of spectacular surrender, all on the basis that what Trump and Bannon and co had had undoubtedly accrued was a a, a kind of a, a big group, whether you want to call it MAGA, the, the deplorables, to use the term that Hillary Clinton used and then Bannon appropriated. The, the Republican Party was quite happy to surf that wave. And it's hard, I think, now to see them squirming out of it. There is a narrative that Trump is gone, we'll all go back to normal. I don't buy that. I don't think there are pendulums in politics. I think that Trump has done immense damage to the Republic and of lesser importance, immense damage to the Republican Party. And I don't think they can just say, phew, you know, he's gone back to Mar-a-Lago. Can we go back to being, you know, the, the party where the next member of the Bush family in line becomes president? I, I just don't think that's, that's feasible. The, the, the repair work is huge. For a final segment, uh, the government has just added EU nationals to the voluntary return scheme, which can include flights and up to £2,000 for resettlement. Meanwhile, the shocking story of a Greek citizen detained in cruel conditions on suspicion of looking for a job provoked complaints from the Greek embassy. Minnie, the, the big question that, that I keep coming back to here is that even as polls show, and have been showing since 2016, that voters are increasingly relaxed about immigration, perhaps because they feel like, you know, Brexit has... Uh, Brexit has taken the poison out of that for a bit. The government seems intent on stoking anti-immigration sentiment. And so, I mean, the old excuse, I suppose, would be they are pandering to the voters, the people who will drift off to, to UKIP. But does this now reveal a real obsession on the part of the Home Office and Pretty Patel? 
Yeah, I think it's really important not to underestimate the the level of stubbornness that runs through the core of the Home Office and and Pretty Patel. What um, Pretty Patel will argue, and what the the Home Office will argue, is that they are bringing EU nationals in line with non EU nationals, and and that is the actual truth of it. You know, these are policies that have affected non EU nationals for a very long time. So they're they're bringing people in line with that with those policies and and holding on to them with with both hands you know the last few years have shown that the home office is not willing to engage with the substantial changes that are needed you know that is particularly evident with with the windrush scandal you know that highlighted a whole host of problems there was an independent review it, and the government hasn't really committed to to changing any of that and then on top of that you've got pretty patel in charge and you know she is hell bent on making things as difficult for migrants as possible she's created a situation in where she's bringing eu nationals in line with non eu nationals but is also making the situation worse more generally and uh, you know i find it quite difficult to work out how much of this is coming from johnson it doesn't feel to me like he has much ownership of it at all it doesn't feel like he's on top of the policy at all and it seems that it is really being dictated by pretty patel so there is a lot of work to be done there to dismantle how the how the home office operates and then on top of that you do have the fact that it is convenient to stoke anti-migrant sentiment during a crisis you know it's the, the classic scapegoat does labor have a position on this resettlement scheme uh, you know, I'm afraid to say that Labour are, are largely very quiet about policies like this. Some backbenchers, for example, um, the previous shadow immigration minister, Afsal Khan, has expressed concerns about the way that voluntary returns are carried out. But but Labour's current position, just generally on immigration, has, has yet to kind of be determined. You know, we know that they're concerned about policies which affect families and children and put huge pressure on local authorities. Um, there have been moves from Labour-led councils to oppose the removal of uh, homeless EU nationals and Labour have opposed policies like no recourse to public funds. Keir Starmer has said that he wants a fairer and more compassionate immigration system, but he hasn't yet set out what that looks like or what his plan for it is. And Shadow Home Secretary um, Nick Thomas-Simmons has focused his mandate more robustly on policing and kind of avoided the topic of immigration as if it's you know too controversial for them to engage with and i can't see labor at a national level trying to discourage the tories from putting policies like this in place and and, and i do think it is a huge mistake well, we're opposed to this policy uh in principle but but pragmatically does it actually do what it's meant to do does is two thousand pounds does that does that prove persuasive enough for a lot of people like, do we do we sort of have figures on on actually do, do people take this up? So I think first of all, it's really important to to think about the two thousand figure as as the top end. You know, that is the maximum amount of money that you can be offered to leave. It's very unlikely that people will ever get that full sum, and most likely it only exists for the purpose of kind of entire families being removed. So the the idea is is that it would allow you to resettle properly, but of course that's not going to last long if you're going to a country that that you haven't been to for a very long time you need housing you've got two kids in terms of the the voluntary return scheme there is a huge amount of evidence that 
because of the way that our immigration system currently works, because of the way that there is so much hostility and distrust between migrants and the Home Office, a scheme like that is never going to be effective because it relies on open and and kind conversations and encouragement of people being able to return. What this, you know, that can work and it does work in some other countries where, you know, people have exhausted every opportunity and therefore, you know, are willing to engage in a process with the the government which allows them to return to to a different country. But here, when you have such chaos and hostility and people not wanting to engage with the government nicely and the government not wanting to do that back, it it doesn't work like that. And people are most often just put in these detention centres for a really long time and pushed to the point where they're told you are going and then they're removed forcefully. That's that's the reality of the situation. This scheme, it doesn't work in the UK as it it currently is. Alex, what messages are the government sending to EU nationals? Because on the one hand, you've got this kind of 2000, up to £2,000 to leave. Then also, obviously, there's the settled status um, application program. Then we've got the situation of the waiter from Piraeus who ended up in sort of dreadful conditions due to some kind of small technicality. I mean, it, is, it, is it mixed messages? Is it, oh, apply for settled status, but also go away? No, I don't think the message, the message is mixed. I think the message uh, from the top echelons of the party has always been, you are very welcome here, you are our friends. But when it comes to the actual process, the process of the Home Office, the message has always been that we are undesirables. And this effectively could be seen from the fact that there is a system of of applying what had been promised to EU citizens was a system of simply acknowledging, validating your, uh, you know, your citizenship rights in this country on the basis that you've been here. It wasn't meant to be a system where people were rejected or people went in two tiers. And this is storing a huge problem for the future. I mean, it's almost half the 4 million applications, 40-odd percent, have been granted temporary settled status. Um, This means that there's a five-year period running, at the end of which, unless you have taken certain actions, you become an undocumented migrant, effectively. You fall in a legal grey area. And as far as I know, the Home Office have put nothing no resources, no information into informing people who now have temporary settled status of how they can go about making that a permanent settled status. And the first few of those millions of people of the scheme that started in 2018, their temporary settled status will be lapsing in two years' time. So, you know, the time is coming up. At the same time, you have a situation where, you know, Sotirios Kostantakos turns up at the airport, basically, and some border official asks him, he thinks whether he has a job back in Greece, he says yes. The official has actually asked him whether he intends to get a job here, and he gets bunged up for seven days in an unheated prison, basically, before he's deported. Now, that seems to me an overly aggressive interpretation of the rules by any measure. So, yeah, I think they're trying to send the message that, you know, EU people are not wanted here. 
And when it comes to people who are already here, this, you know, might be saving them loads of money. If they if they approach someone, you know, Polish who is homeless now, but has actually been working and paying national insurance and tax for the last three decades, and they can offer they can offer them a grant to go back home instead of staying here and claiming actually the benefits that he's entitled to, the help from the state that he's entitled to, and the pension that he will be entitled to for many years to come. They've just saved themselves a bundle. Matt, while all this is going on, um, there's been a flood of visa inquiries from Hong Kong residents under the government's new scheme. They expected out of 5 million uh, eligible Hong Kongers, about 300,000 people expected to to take up this offer. Now, the sort of history of immigration and, and anti-migrant sentiment in this country normally shows us that when there is a, a, an influx uh, from a particular country, this sort of fires up the the um, you know the far right and the hard right. Given that the likes of Nigel Farage hate China almost as much as they hate immigrants, will this be a different case? Do the politics of this shake out differently? I suppose they'll be torn, won't they? Because on the one hand, it will they, they'll want to be seen as valiant tribunes of those who stood up against communist China. Uh, but on the other hand, they won't want a lot of um, Hong Kongers in the UK. So bears of little brain will be uh, very conflicted about this i mean i do worry about everything that we've just been talking about what minnie's been talking about i've been talking about i mean it seems to me that that we are about that culturally politically in terms of political culture we are about 60 years out of date in the way that we approach immigration which is that this is a pluralist country it's one that relies uh, heavily on migrant labor at all levels of the workforce it's it's multicultural and um the nature of globalization of the of the world of the way that modern human behavior works means that there will continue to be a huge amount of population mobility it, it, it troubles me because i think that you know hong kong is the closest thing we have now to a berlin wall in modern geopolitics it's a hugely sensitive problem and it, it's it's inevitable that part of this will be Hong Kong was coming to live here, and to your point, I mean, one worries that 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 their reception will will be hostile in some places. The precedent of the Ugandan nations springs to mind. This, this should not be happening in two thousand and twenty-one. Uh, what, you know what I long for, and 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 I think that has been missing in the UK political landscape is someone who can speak to the UK electorate as grown-ups about the, the question of immigration and stop, stop treating it as a pathology, you know, as something that has to be minimized as if it was a kind of, a kind of virus, you know, it, it's not, it's a feature of the modern human condition, modern human existence. Uh, and yes, it, it, it needs a, a measure of regulation and there are ways of doing that, but uh, we shouldn't treat it as, uh, as the government does. And as, as uh, in many ways, political culture generally does as something that needs always to be minimized, always to be reduced. Because, I mean, to take the example of the NHS, which, you know, is under huge pressure, there are you know, massive shortages of um, of nurses and, and now doctors as well that, you know, we, we need to be filled from overseas. And yet, you know, could we, could we be creating a less hospitable mm. environment for people to come to? 
and that's the show. There's no but your emails this week, uh, as our inbox was corrupted when we clicked on a suspiciously misspelt <laughs> offer of a cheeky vaccine on the side. But, but to get your question into us, sign up on Patreon by searching Oh God, What Now? We'll read out the best ones on the show, and you'll hear our extra bit in full. Stick around after the music for a teaser. All that's left is to thank Minnie. Thanks, everyone. Alex. No, thank you. And our guest, Matt Dancona. Thank you very much. And now it's time for our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Hello from me to Ewan MacDonald, David Guthrie, Richard Sully, Stuart Rupker and Benedict Jong. And many thanks from me to Christopher Wilde, Phil Brown, and Deary Francis, Neil Devlin, Martin Walker. And thanks from me to Richard Kilmurray, Ricky Price, JC, Joanne Franklin and Tim Jones. Oh God, what now? It was presented by Dorian Linsky with Minnie Rahman and Alexandre. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. The audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week we've got our olive branches at the ready as we each pick someone we admire from a different political tradition. Alex, let's start with you. So my choice is Donald Tusk. Um, and it ties into the conversation we were having earlier about Ursula von der Leyen, because I think it's easy for pro-Europeans like me to somehow sanitize the past political career of figures when they rise to leadership roles in the European Union, because I am fond of the European project. But we must find a way, actually, to separate the project from the personnel. Uh, and we must find ways to be critical of the choices politicians make while supporting the overall project and still uh, believing that the United Kingdom would have been better off as a member. Now, Donald Tusk became talismanic in the fight against Brexit because he was someone, I think, that a lot of people felt told it like it is uh, to a government that wasn't told it like it is by much of the domestic media. Um, and he really was undiplomatic at times, um, but always quite cheeky and quite charming uh, and got away with it. But his politics dom- domestically um, back in Poland could not be further from mine. So he, I mean, he started off as a sort of Thatcherite figure looking to lower taxes, privatise everything, um, make home ownership his, his mantra, he did mellow through his two terms into a more camera. That was a taster of the extended edition of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, I got what now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll be helping the podcast and we'll appreciate it enormously. Thanks for listening. Take care and see you next week.